It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host, John Riley. We welcome you to our studios in San Diego. It's Hacksaw's Headlines, our regular weekly Thursday podcast. And there is a ton of stuff out there to talk about. John, obviously, we're starting with baseball, but there's so much going on in the NFL with the combines, the NBA with the playoff race, NHL trading deadline, and the pro golf tour war starts up again. Wow. Wow. I mean, normally February is a slow month. <laughs> not but anymore. No, it's not this week. Not the podcast world. I know. I mean, you sent me the email with the headlines. I'm like, holy crap, we've got a lot to do here. So uh, let's dive in. Start. Spring training. What do you want to cover? Okay. So everybody is excited about the Padres, but you know, there's been some interesting things that have been going on with the, you know, with the six man rotation may be in jeopardy. Well, the Padres have lost starting pitcher Joe Musgrove. It's a big issue. Uh, dropped a 50-pound kettle weight on his foot, broke the left big toe. Any foot injury for a pitcher is really significant, John, because you either push off with the right foot if you're Joe Musgrove or you land with the left foot, and that means there's a lot of body weight and pressure on those joints, on those toes. It's It's a fracture, no surgery. However... Cannot do anything baseball-related for two weeks. That means no throwing. That means can't build up arm strength. It means he'll be behind schedule. They think it'll take about three weeks for him to get back on the mound and obviously to build arm strength and then pitch with the type of velocity he needs. It looks like he's going to miss at least the first two starts of the regular season. The, the scary part about what happened to Joe Musgrove, aside from the fracture of the big toe, is that any time you have anything that relates to footwork on the mound, it changes mechanics. Whether you change him intentionally or you change it accidentally because you're favoring something, and that could lead to arm problems. So you've got to be very judicious with his training regimen, and then when he gets back on the mound and starts to do soft toss, and then when he starts to throw, and then he throws BP, and then they try to elevate how many pitches he's throwing in bullpens, you got to be very careful that nothing changes mechanically because you don't want anything to impact shoulder or elbow. Yeah, that's a fair point. And mechanics are so delicate. Just one little thing can throw it off. But, you know, Musgrove works in the offseason. It's not like he's showing up, taking three months off. I mean, he's he's prepared. He's going to be set back a little bit by this injury. But the Padres have a lot of depth that they can pull from, right? Well, we talked last week on our podcast when we opened the Cactus League. They got nine potential starting pitchers with some form of major league experience. So everybody, John, bumps up in the rotation to start the season. Blake Snell be, now becomes your number two behind you, Darvish. And then Michael Walker probably bumps up to number three. And then you got Nick Martinez, who looks like he's really ahead of schedule. He'll probably be number four. Number five, who knows? It might be Julio Tehran, the ex-Atlanta Brave, who had a good first outing, but he's got to build on that. They've got all these other pitchers there. They have the depth to withstand the loss of a guy for a start or two. 
There is a wild card in all this conversation, though, John. They play 24 games in the first 25 days. Wow. That's very different because that'll put a lot of stress on your pitchers. And that's where the idea of the six-man rotation would come from. But now it's down to maybe a five-man rotation. They're still deep in the bullpen. So this this is a bit of a bump in the road. It's a bit of a setback for Joe Musgrove himself. On we go. Dodgers. They lose their shortstop. This is a big blow. Gavin Lux had a really good season last year at second base. Real good season with the glove. Really good season swinging the stick. He blows out his knee running the bases. He didn't get hit. He planted to avoid a ball, a ground ball. Spikes caught. Knee twisted. Two torn ligaments. Going to be operated on uh, next week. Gone for the entire season. Dodgers are lucky they have an insurance policy in that they had traded for Miguel Rojas, a gold glove shortstop. Miami Marlins doesn't hit very much. He's going to go in, and they just announced this morning they're moving Chris Taylor back from center field into shortstop to maybe rotate with Rojas. And that means then James Outman probably is going to be the opening day starting center fielder. Terrible blow for Lux. Just just a terrible setback for a kid who had really progressed uh, as, as a minor leaguer becoming a major leaguer. I think the other issue is Dodger batting order. Nowhere's near what it was a year ago. No Justin Turner, no Trey Turner, no Cody Bellinger slump included, and now <laughs> Gavin Lux. Yeah. Holy cow. That looks like, I mean, I grant you they do have the superstar in Mookie Betts and the superstar in Freddie Freeman and a really good catcher in Will Smith. But boy, this looks like a ragtag batting order to me. Yeah, it's got to be tough on Lux because this was his opportunity. You know, he was always behind in the depth chart, behind Seeger, behind Trey Turner. Now it's the job was given to him, and then he had this unfortunate accident. I mean, we don't want to ever wish harm or injury to anybody, uh, but this has got to be a tough one for him and his family. It's not the same Dodger team. You know, mm-hmm. they've got openings all over the place in their pitching staff. And now they've got, to me, they've got a lot of holes in their batting order. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think now you can pitch around Freddie Freeman. You can pitch around Mookie Betts. And who else in the Dodger batting order is going to scare you? That's mm. that's a big issue. Now, maybe there's a trade coming. Maybe there's a, there's a rental of another bat coming. But Dodger lineup is not the same. On we go because we got stuff off the field that's kind of really interesting <laughs> as it relates to the baseball rules. Yeah, I mean, I think this is incredible, these, these rules changes. So let's break all these down because we're seeing a lot of this play. Out in the spring training games right now. Yeah, you got pitchers saying, You're calling a ball on me? What'd I do? <laughs> uh, you're calling me a balk on me because I stepped a certain way on a pickoff move? Uh, why is that a strike? What do you mean I can't step out of the box? Mentally, the guys have to reset themselves. It's just a very different feel to the game. Now, we still got four more weeks of spring training, and I think they'll solve this by the last week of March, but it's really fascinating. 15-second uh, pitch clock. Your name is Julio Urias, Dodgers ace. Four times in his first outing. That's a ball. <laughs> wow. Because he takes a long time to set. Yeah. And he looks and he sets. He really had a tough time. Uh, Jose Quintana, longtime starting pitcher. Cubs, White Sox, Cardinals. Freaked out in a start over the weekend. 40 pitches in one inning. Could not get settled on the mound because he kept looking at the clock. Totally disengaged, (laughs) unraveled, gave up four runs, four hits, walked two batters, and had two violations. I mean, So some of these guys are going through a bit of a learning curve. I like the pitch clock, uh, the games. I've watched a bunch of different Cactus League and uh, Grapefruit Circuit games on MLB TV. Uh, The pitchers are working really hard at it, but you can't let the clock, which they can see, 
off to the side of home plate. You can't let the clock get into your psyche, into your mind. So that's that's an interesting story. Batter's box. This has taken some getting used to. A, whatever your walk-up theme to come to home plate with a bat in your hand, John, mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to play much music on the way to the plate. Right. Get your butt in the batter's box. And by the way, none of this adjusting gloves between every pitch. Uh, guys are struggling. Uh, the Padres, uh, Nelson Cruz, Manny Machado, uh, and one other guy all got strikes called on them because you got to be in the box with eight seconds left on the clock ready for the delivery. It's a big issue, but they'll get used to it. But, you know, these guys have made a culture of taking their time and strutting and looking at the third base coach. And that's another, nobody's talked about the challenge of the third base coach. Flash those signs in. Maybe you got to get them in. Uh, Going to be fascinating to see if this becomes a, an issue. I wonder how Mike Hargrove, the human rain delay, would have liked <laughs> the pitch clock and the yeah. pace of play. New rules that are out there. Uh, pickoff attempts. You can only throw over there twice. Uh, stolen bases have really jumped. I'll give you some statistics in a minute. Stolen bases have really jumped in the first weekend full of exhibition games because you can only look over there and go there twice, and that's it. I think guys, I think base runners, speed base runners, a la the Ricky Hendersons of the world, they're going to psych out pitchers because pitchers got to pay attention to the clock, and now pitchers got to pay attention to the guy leading off first base. Do I throw? When do I throw? Don't I throw? You got to concentrate on the batter. Mind games. Mm-hmm. Mind games. I this is going to bear watching. I do think stolen bases are probably going to wind up going up uh, this year. The ban on the shift. Guys are getting called for this. Think about this. Last couple of years, load the left side of the infield to stop guys from the left-handed batters from driving it through. Put guys out in short right field. Mm-hmm. Shift really changed baseball's offenses this year. Nobody's violated it by being on the wrong side of second base. New rule is two guys on one side of second base, two guys on the other. You can't cheat. However, the rule is John Riley, you're my shortstop. You might be shading over towards second base, mm-hmm. kind of a mini shift. John, your cleats are on the grass. That's that's a ball. You can't get off the dirt. You have to be on the infield dirt, even if you're shading towards second base. Wow. So some of the shortstops have been caught cheating. And one thing that baseball never paid any attention to, and it's happened once or twice so far in games in Florida, you can redeploy your outfielders. You, now, you got three guys in the garden. You could take your left fielder, if you wish, and you could move him into short right field, which gives you an extra fielder to try to stop the guy driving a ball through the right side. However, that leaves a gaping hole and a lot of real estate for your center fielder to cover foul line to center field because the right fielders become an extra guy on this side. Oh, wow. Uh, no, nobody's addressed that in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Did you mean to let this slip through the cracks that teams can still cheat and have an extra guy <laughs> in shallow right field. Mm-hmm. So that that bears watching, too. Um, pitching motion. When you come ready to pitch on the mound, you can't rock. You can't start a false motion to try to deceive the batter. Mike Clevenger? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You think? Yeah. Luis Garcia? <laughs> yeah. Padre setup guy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can't do that anymore. And I think the guys who have this style, you talk about resetting themselves, 
rebuilding their pitching mechanics. This bears watching. Does this screw some guys up who have made a career of doing this, doing this before the pitch? You can't do it anymore. Wow. So keep, yeah, keep an eye on that. And one other note, schedule changes. Uh, we've not had a lot of discussion. I like this idea. I don't know if you're a Boston Red Sox fan, Oriole fan, whatever. Um, you used to play 19 games within your division. Should get 19 times for a Padre fan to hate Dodger fan and dislike <laughs> Giant fan and right. all that other. Well, now, because they want a balanced schedule, they, everybody plays everybody. I mean, it's really cool. For the three Detroit Tiger fans that live here, you'll get to see the Tigers maybe come to Petco Park or, or Cleveland Guardian fans or whomever. But it only means 13 games to hate on the Dodgers, the Giants, the Diamondbacks, and the Rockies. I like that balanced schedule. All right, let me throw you a stat here because I've, I've, I've talked a lot. Just let me give you an update. The pace of play game rules that the commissioner has forced in, spring training games first weekend last year, games took three hours, one minute. Spring training games this year, first full weekend, Grapefruit Circuit Cactus League, Two hours and 38 minutes. Wow. That's pretty impressive. That's a big difference. Yeah. And if we were living in the Randy Jones era, we'd probably have a game <laughs> done in 68 minutes. Yeah. The way he worked with the new yeah. rules. Uh, so that that's interesting. And batting averages with the ban of the shift. The batting averages in the first week of spring training last year were 259. That's a cumulative of all the games played in spring training that first full week. Batting averages this first full week. 272. Wow. Boom. A little bit more offense. Okay, so I threw a lot at, on your plate. Go ahead. Tell me about the rules you like, the ones you don't like, the pitchers and their psyche and their, the base runners. And Go ahead. There, there's a lot there. So, <laughs> well, first of all, the whole Velcro batting glove thing, I blame Nomar Garcia Parra. Because okay. he was the one that I, I remember is the first one that did it. And now they're constantly wearing out the Velcro. So interesting. They're going to pick up that pace of play. I like it. One thing that I saw today in my Twitter feed, which was unbelievable, was the Yankees were playing the Pirates. And um, what's his name? Wandy Peralta was pitching for the Yankees. And... Uh, uh, What's the guy's name? He used to be a Padre. Mar- Marciano, Tucapita Marciano, yes. was pitching or batting for the Pirates. Um, Wandy Peralta, quick pitch, three pitches in a row, and struck him out in 27 seconds. Wow. <laughs> so the, as soon as he got the ball back from the catcher, he set up and threw. I mean, it was that fast. And so the batter could never get set. So now you're seeing the pendulum swing all the way the other way, you know, so now the pitchers can make the batters uncomfortable. So... There's going to be a lot of this gamesmanship as this thing plays out. I'm I'm fascinated by this. I'm a big fan of all these rule changes because I think that it's going to make the game more appealing to sort of the you know non-serious fans, you know, people that are just learning about the sport. Um, and I think it's going to make it even more exciting for us longtime baseball guys. I think there may be more oomph, more offense in the game, more base stealing in the game, which I think people like. Yeah, I here's I'll go go you one farther aside <laughs> from the pirate Yankee incident. You're at home plate. Get your butt in the batter's box. You're facing Max Scherzer Mets. You're facing Justin Verlander. Mm-hmm. They're ready to pitch. And you're in the box because you got to be in the box because they're ready to pitch. Mm-hmm. And they make you sit there. And they run the whole 15 seconds off the clock before Scherzer actually goes into his motion to deliver the ball. <laughs> now you got an uncomfortable batter in the box who's had to stay there hyped, ready, mm-hmm. wait, wait. Wait, and historically, the guys, it's time to get out of the batter's box. Right. So now you've got veteran pitchers 
using the clock to psych out John Riley in the batter's yeah. box. It's going to be great, you know. And the shot, you know, in basketball, the shot clock was an improvement on the game. You know, this is kind of like a shot clock. Uh, so all of these changes are interesting. And, and to your other point, man, I love Ricky Henderson. He's like my favorite baseball player of all time. Partially what he says off the field as much as how he performed on it. But, uh, yeah, let's let's see some more base running. I mean, Tatis already stole a base for the Padres. The Padres have a lot of guys that can run. So let's uh, let's fire up the engines. Let's get a little bit of uh, Whitey Herzog from the 80s. Yeah, I think there's some dynamics to baseball once we get to the start of the regular season we'll pay attention to. Before we move on to the NFL, John, on our Thursday podcast, tell people about how they can subscribe. Tell the people about how we're looking for co-host. Do you want to be part of our podcast right at the end in fans forum go ahead john all right yeah you can be a, a co-host you can get involved in the conversation just drop your take your question your comment for hacksaw in the live chat on either facebook or on youtube we've already got like close to 10 messages already so uh just drop your message there we'll get you involved in the fans forum segment at the conclusion of hacksaw's headlines and the list is very long so it'll be near the end um and then yeah be be sure to subscribe you can subscribe wherever you get your audio only podcast but be sure also to subscribe on YouTube um, and click on that subscribe button and the bell. You get all the alerts for all the new video clips that we release throughout the week. And new rules. Before you go to bed at night, you need to check my website. When you get up first thing in the morning, you need to check my website. It's all written. LeeHacksawHamilton.com. You like sports. You liked our talk shows, even if you didn't like our talk shows. (laughs) You will like what we do on our Website. It's LeeHacksawHamilton.com. We post late in the evening. It's always there for you first thing in the morning before we go to breakfast. Let's go to the National Football League with topics on the table. Yeah, so... It's like it's off season for the NFL, but the NFL news cycle is never the off season, right? So now everyone's jockeying for position with the the NFL draft that's coming. I mean, what's the latest? The big story at the NFL combines in Indy, and Thursday was the first day they started to work out. The big story off the field: the Chicago Bears have announced they're putting the number one pick up for trade. They of course have the quarterback Justin Fields. They force fed him. They think he's a dynamic athlete. They think he is kind of like Jalen Hurts. They have to. Polish his passing game. He does run the ball very well. Also gets banged up. However, they're not taking a quarterback at number one in Chicago. This is going to set off a bidding war because there are at least six NFL clubs that don't have quarterbacks. And that, that starts with Houston at number two. So Houston has to be anxious. Does somebody jump ahead of us and take the quarterback that we want? I mean, the top two quarterbacks are Bryce Young of Alabama and C.J. Stroud of Ohio State. There are some other quarterbacks a little bit farther back. So Houston's got to be a little bothered by this because somebody might jump ahead of them and take their guy. So does Chicago drop back one spot? I think Chicago really wants Will Anderson, the great linebacker from Alabama, with their top pick. Would they flip-flop with Houston, let Houston take what they want? Would they find another buyer and maybe trade back another spot, let another buyer get the other quarterback on the board, and they still get Will Anderson or maybe the big Georgia defensive tackle? So that's where Chicago is right now. They're fielding phone calls. And who knows what the price would be? I mean, if if they were to flip with Houston, if they go from one down to two, Houston goes up a slot. Houston maybe has to give them a third-round pick. Then if they go from two down to three, 
Maybe the same thing. They get somebody else's number one. Maybe they get a, a later number one or another second-round pick there. So they've got a chance to stockpile some draft currency here without dropping too far down the board. If that's the guy, the Alabama guy, that's the guy that they want. Uh, the, the, the guys that need quarterbacks are Houston at two, the Colts at four. Seattle just announced they're in the running for a young quarterback, even though they're trying to negotiate to keep Geno Smith. So Seattle is sitting there at number five. The Raiders don't have a quarterback. They have the seventh pick. Then you got Carolina at nine that has nobody on the roster that can throw the football right now. And Tennessee and the New York Jets are sitting there 11 and 13, and they're in the middle of transitioning to try to find somebody different than the quarterbacks that they've currently got. This, to me, this is just going to be a fascinating story. Yeah, so let's say you're the GM of the Panthers. Would you be better off like trading a boatload of guys to move up to that number one spot? Or do you just go out and sign Derek Carr or uh, Jimmy Garoppolo? Well, they met with Derek Carr last night. Carolina did at the NFL Combine. That's a tough call because for them to go from nine up into one or two, you're going to pay a fair amount. Now, granted, they got a fair amount when they traded Christian McCaffrey to the 49ers, but they made that deal so they could have assets to go get multiples and multiples and multiples of players because their roster is rather threadbare. That's a a great point that you raise about what about somebody further back, how much you're willing to pay. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I'm Frank Reich and I think Derek Carr still got miles left on those tires, I think if I could sign Derek Carr, a decent cap number, but if I can sign him and I keep all these picks that we that we brought into the pot and then just fix that roster around Derek Carr, that's the direction I would go. I don't know what the Jets are doing. You know, the Jets spent a number one on Zach Wilson. Then they spent another pick on a higher pick on Mike White, kid out of Western Kentucky. And they're still talking to Derek Carr. They've had two meetings with him. The Green Bay Aaron Rodgers rumor is still out there. I don't know what the Jets are doing. If you were to get Carr, what do you do with the other two kid quarterbacks that you drafted and paid money to? Or if you're going to give the house away to get Aaron Rodgers, what are you doing with Zach Wilson? What are you doing uh, with with the, the other quarterback, Mike White? So fascinating to see these clubs that kind of position themselves into a tough, tough situation. Yeah, I think if you're one of those teams that's in the middle, you know, that's maybe the 15th pick or whatever, you just need to get assets, right? You need to get as many, you know, top draft picks as you can. So I, I like the idea of, in some of these cases, of teams trading back if they already have a guy in that spot. Now, granted, the Bears are in the number one spot. If they really believe Justin Fields is their guy, then yeah, trade back, get some linebackers, get some O-linemen, and, and move forward. On we go. Uh, teams out here on the West Coast, there are questions and topics on the table involving the teams that fans like to talk about here, the Chargers, those Rams. Okay, so you know, Nona the Black Lab wants to talk about the Chargers and the Rams. You can hear her back there chirping. So, um, yeah, there's a, this is going to be interesting because we've talked about how the wide receivers, the, you know, Williams and Keenan Allen for the Chargers are going to make, what, $37 million combined? That's our cap figure. How can they make that work you know, up in, up in Inglewood? Well, one rumor was they were going to eat the contract and release Keenan Allen. I said, no, you can't do that. Not at this point. He's still got value. I don't know if he's a $21 million a year value wide receiver. Obviously, you you can't ask Mike Williams to give money back. He just signed him to a $16 million cap figure contract. I do think uh, that they're going to go to Keenan Allen uh, before March 15th and ask him to take a pay cut or restructure down to make it a cap figure deal. Uh, Tom Telesco, the general manager, just said 
said at the NFL Combines in Indianapolis, we are not trading Keenan Allen. We are not releasing Keenan Allen, which means there's a renegotiation probably coming for Keenan Allen. Uh, the Chargers, they've got free agent issues, though. They're like $20 million over the cap still, and they got till the 15th to make this deal. Uh, the Chargers have got to re-sign the right tackle, Trey Pipkins, that they've invested a great deal in to make him a starter, finally. they got to re-sign uh, Drew Tranquil, the linebacker, the kid out of Notre Dame. It took him three years. He's become a really efficient, rock-solid player, but he's out there on the open market. And then Nasir Adderley, pretty active safety back there, kind of combo safety corner. He's an unrestricted free agent, so the Chargers got a lot to do. In terms of the Rams, they've already released Bobby Wagner. They take a cap hit on that, but they were not going to pay him monster money the second year of the deal. The Rams reportedly are shopping and are trying to trade Jalen Ramsey. They're outstanding, outspoken Pro Bowl cornerback. And they might only be able to get a number one pick for him. They traded two number ones a couple of years ago to Jacksonville to get him. Rams have got cap issues. Rams don't have a number one pick yet. Rams do have a total of 10 draft picks, but much of them are later on. Uh, so they move Ramsey. It's just, I guess my gut feel is, John, it's just not the same L.A. Rams franchise anymore. Uh, the injury to Matthew Stafford, obviously what's happened in the offensive line, uh, and then now now you got to move defensive starters, stalwarts, cornerstone guys. Bobby Wagner made a ton of tackles for them. Ramsey's still a pretty good cover corner. You have to move those guys out of there because you got cap issues. So Rams football going forward, it's not going to be like Rams football we've seen just in recent years. Thoughts on the Chargers? Thoughts on the Rams? Well, I'm just interested on the Rams because they've fallen so fast. You know, usually these teams, they build and, you know, they take them a few cycles to get to the Super Bowl. And then they can usually remain at that peak level for two or three years. We've seen so many examples of that in NFL history, but the Rams fell off a cliff. So so, um, yeah, and then you know, to the the whole point with these quarterbacks and these other star players are making so much money, you know, and you only have so many chips that you can play, you know, two hundred and whatever million is your cap. Um, so yeah, the Rams are in a tough spot. You know, as far as the Chargers go, geez, I mean, it's one. If it's not one thing, it's another. So hopefully they can straighten this out. I mean, they got the new offensive coordinator. It seems like they got to address what their their offense strategy is going to be, and then find the players that are going to fit that. Definitely. Uh, free agency starts March 15th. Don't go anywhere. There's going to be a lot of player movement. We've got one other topic here around the National Football League. ton of controversy, and it looks like it's coming to a head. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by this story because there's a lot of, you know, behind the curtain stuff that's going on with the commanders that is distasteful. We talked about Snyder's history in Washington and how he's just totally screwed it up. What can Roger Goodell do to kind of straighten this guy out? I don't know if it's just Goodell, but the owners on Wednesday night put Daniel Snyder's ownership of the Washington Commanders on the agenda at the owners meeting in two weeks. Big issue because there's been an undercurrent of conversation that they're going to try to bring this to a vote to remove him as the owner of the team. Uh, you've got the two toxic workplace culture investigations that are gone on. The league has never, ever revealed any details on what's been found out. That, to me, is a dent in the NFL shield. Sure. Lack of honesty, lack of transparency. You got that. You got the 
minority owner lawsuits against Daniel Snyder. You got the revelation that he had to pay $1.6 million to a female employee for a sexual assault case that he himself was involved in. That was covered up for an extended period of time until the Washington Post finally dug that story up. Check mark for American journalism. That's why we need newspapers to continue to operate the way they operate. And now you add in the story that just broke this week, the Washington Post reporting uh, that Daniel Snyder obtained illegally a $55 million loan letter of credit from Bank of America without informing his board of directors and, w- and without informing the National Football League. Wow. How this guy can be allowed to still be a partner and in business with them with all this junk that's gone around since he's owned the franchise, is beyond me. This is not a guy making bad football decisions. This sure looks and sounds and reads and testified he's a bad person. Yeah. I I mean, it's one thing to not tell the NFL you took out, you know, a huge loan, but it's a whole other thing to not tell your own board of directors. You're, you know, they're essentially the shareholders in your company that you're going into debt. Um, That's a fascinating move there. Now, I, you know, I just remember the days of, I mean, what was the longtime family that owned the Redskins back in the day? Well, the Marshall family. Well, well there was another family, wasn't there, that back when the Joe Gibbs oh, era? Jack, Jack Kent Cook. Yeah, yeah. You know, so th- there's this a really interesting history with that franchise in Washington. It's our nation's capital, you know, f- for heaven's sake. I mean, let's, let's get these guys straightened out and so they can represent, you know, Washington, D.C., Amazing. Uh, I would think we might get to the first week of April during our podcast, and he may have been voted out by his fellow owners. And the league has done this prior. The league, the league voted out uh, the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles because of a gambling debt and gambling addiction. The mm-hmm. league voted out or actually forced the sale, blacklisted Eddie DeBartolo Jr., who had done oh, yeah. legendary things for the 49ers, but yet he was involved with bribery and grafting corruption with governmental people in the state of Louisiana. So there is a precedent to force these guys out who are bad citizens. This, to me, looks like a bad citizen. On we go. Boy, we got a lot of basketball to talk about, too. <laughs> yeah, we do. So up the road in L.A., I mean, just when it seems like the Lakers are getting it together, now their two stars are get, getting hurt. Trade deadline. They go get all these guys, kind of change the chemistry of the team again, start to play better, and now they're both hurt. Anthony Davis has a stress reaction issue in his right foot Again, this is the same foot in which he injured and missed 20 games in and around November and December. I don't know whether or not he's going to be able to play through it or whether he'll wind up playing one game and then having to take a night or a week off and then play another game. LeBron James has played so hard and carried this team. Now he's injured the right foot. He went for a second medical opinion on Thursday morning. They announced he's got tendon damage in the right foot. Does not need surgery, but they're talking shut down for three weeks before he can be reexamined again. He keeps playing. He sprained his left ankle three times this year and has come back and played, tried to play through it, play on it. And now this happens. And it's just these are fluke injuries, guys. Go into the basket for a slam dunk and comes down on your right foot and ankle flips and now he's hurt. Just bad. It is is weird because they went into Oklahoma City on Wednesday night and I thought they were going to get the doors blown off. And Dennis Schroeder just went crazy, scored 25 points, made a ton of big plays, and the Lakers hung on. But, you know, where are they going to go, this this bulk of the schedule? The Lakers are sitting there right now in 11th place. 
they have they feel they have to get to sixth place where the Clippers are to avoid being in the play-in games. Mm -hmm. Because the play-in games, you play one game. If you win, you play a second play-in game, and then you qualify for the plus. Well, they're so beat up and battered, and if they have to go on the road. So, I mean, it's panic. They have to win these games to get out of 11th place, not slip further back. And they they don't want to be 7-8 or 9-10 because those are the guys that go in the play-in games. Yeah. So they're desperately trying to get the sixth place. But the you, Lakers must think that everybody above them is going to lose every game. I don't think so. Yeah. And the Clippers have made all these deals to change the chemistry of their team. They're not giving up sixth place. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get into fifth place. So it's a terrible, terrible blow for the Lakers just – it's, it's like they're cursed. They can't get healthy, and they <laughs> yeah. can't make the right player acquisitions to put around their superstars. Yeah, well, when you have older guys, they're going to be more susceptible to injuries, right? But imagine if these injuries linger a little bit. I mean, it could drift into the playoffs. I mean, when did the playoffs start? Like around, what, April 10th or something like yeah, that? Yeah, and those playoffs grind into July. Yeah. You think they can stay healthy for those three months on top of what they're experiencing now? Yeah. I don't know. Tough call. Tough call. We'll see where this one goes. Speaking of Laker basketball, this this is uh, quite a story. Yeah, I mean, Kobe Bryant. It was tragic injury, uh, you know, crash, and and now it seems like the the family is now going to win money back from the city of L.A. I mean, let's let's kind of go through that. Well, the tragic helicopter crash in twenty twenty. Uh, there have been lawsuits after lawsuits have been filed against the pilot, against the company by Vanessa Bryant, uh, and then, then then the one really ugly lawsuit against the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, which was at the scene. Of, of the horrific crash that killed all those people. The sheriff's department had three deputies that, quote, took pictures on their cell phone at the crash site. Now, normally, when you're in recovery of bodies and all that, as part of the investigation, you do take pictures. These guys put these pictures on their phones. They were supposed to be turned over. These guys went and showed the pictures of the bodies, of Kobe's mutilated body and the mm-hmm. daughter's death to friends, to other guys that worked in the sheriff's department. And one guy showed them to people that worked in a bar that were friends of his. Mm. Oh, you talk about a breach of credibility. Just, it's a terrible story. Vanessa Bryant, when the story leaked out, just obviously went haywire. Filed a lawsuit against the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. They've just settled it out of court rather than go to trial. She's being paid $29 million by the sheriff's department for the violation of the codes by showing those pictures to people outside the circle of the investigators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, L.A. County Sheriff's Department, I look at them very differently. And I'd, I'm a huge proponent of police and the sheriff's deputies and firemen and all that. L.A. County Sheriff's Department is also the one that mishandled the Tiger Woods crash, where they never did blood tests for alcohol or drugs in the violent crash that just about destroyed Tiger Woods' physical career. You know, who are these people? And, of course, the the sheriff was finally voted out of office. I don't know whether the mishandling of the Bryant thing and the Tiger Woods accident had something to do with it. But I look at the L.A. County Sheriff's Department and— they don't look good in my my lens. Yeah, I mean, you think of the police should be to be to protect and serve, but here they're violating you know someone's privacy. They're doing the opposite of the protection. Did the uh, the photos leak to social media or TMZ or anything like that? No, the sheriff's department once the story became public was able to access and got all the photos back, and I think all that evidence has now been sealed. But the fact that they did it, the fact that they had every right to take the picture of the crash site and the victims. Mm-hmm. The damage, etc., had no right whatsoever 
ethically, morally, intellectually, to show those pictures to anybody, another sheriff's deputy or a, a bartender that one of the guys, one of the sheriffs hung out. Why would you do that? What makes you think that that is not a violation of ethical code? Oh, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. So that's that's the story there. Let's talk about Jekyll. Let's talk about Hyde. <laughs> Let's talk about your basketball team. Oh, I, I watched the game where, when they were on the road in Boise, and I thought they had it in the bag. And again. then Again. And then in the last four and a half minutes, everything went to hell. And now Boise crept up a little bit closer. The Aztecs weren't able to close this game out. Well, San Diego State, and it's it's hard to believe we're sitting here talking about a twenty three and six basketball team in a critical vein. But I'll tell you, I watch Aztecs, follow them, go to the press conferences, talk to the coach, some of the players. They feel more and more like a ten or twelve loss team to me than a twenty three and six team. They have blown leads in six different games in the final five minutes, six times. Their record in close games that they had the lead is only 4-4 four and four this season. This sure does not look like an Elite 8 team to me. It does not look like a Sweet 16 team to me. Now, that being said, should be the top seed Mountain West Conference Tournament and on a neutral floor should be able to beat these guys. But this team is so erratic. You never know what you're going to get from your bigs. You never know where the three-point shooting is going to come from. You never know if there's going to be these defensive lapses in the second half of games and blown all these leads. And for a veteran team, that's the thing that drives me nuts, for a team with all this experience, all these fifth- and sixth-year guys, mm-hmm. to play like this at crunch time? Wow. So they're 23-6. and six. They don't feel like, look like a 23-6 and six team to me or might be in too critical. No. I mean, it's, a, it's legit because, remember, roll the clock back six, seven years ago, the Aztecs had that amazing streak when they were winning with five minutes left. They always close out the game. It was something like 140 consecutive. It was insane. What What do you think was the magic that made that happen? Was that just Steve Fisher? Was it kind of a mentality he was able to coach his players? Or was it the personnel? I mean, what's your take on that? I think it's, I think it's a combination of all those things. Check all those things off. I mean, that was a really immensely intelligent coach, and Steve Fisher should be in the Hall of Fame. That was a tremendously talented offensive basketball team with great skill, but also unbelievably gifted defensively. And there was a mentality. I just don't sense that. I mean, I I like Matt Bradley a great deal. He's having to carry the load a whole chunk of time late in games because these other guys freeze out or can't hit shots. And these other guys are all experienced. I mean, we're talking about Trammell, the transfer from Seattle. Can't buy a basket for weeks. Mm-hmm. And I don't know which Adam Seiko showing up at VA House Arena now. The guy's going to go five for five, hitting threes coming off the bench, or the guy's going to go one for five and sits on the bench. Mm-hmm. And Nathan Mensa gets in foul trouble. And for somebody who's played as much basketball as, as he has, he hit a plateau offensively, and he's never improved off that plateau. I thought he was going to be a dominant offensive guy in addition to being what's stamped on his driver's license, defensive player of the year. Mm-hmm. I don't see that. And so there's some big issues for San Diego State. Again, 
23 and 6 doesn't feel like 23 and 6 to me. <laughs> well, I think maybe the other teams are figuring out the Aztecs because whenever Seiko gets the ball now, I mean, they're on him because they won't even let him get a three point shot off because mm-hmm. he has that quick release like Jordan Shackle had. Um, so they're, I think what they're doing is they're, they're saying, okay, Keyshot, you hit the, the outside shot. We'll give it to you. And he's been actually hitting them lately, but he's made big improvements. They're saying, you know, Lamont Butler, you need to hit the outside shot. They're, and, and they're covering Bradley. But, you know, these other guys need to step up. I mean, Tremellis had been good lately, but where were these guys in the last four and a half minutes in Boise? I think, wasn't Bradley on the bench for most of that time? Yeah, I just, I just, there's a combination of problems, and it's a chemistry problem, it's a confidence problem. It's just, it really stuns me. Now, a week from now, we'll be talking about the Mountain West Conference Tournament, and they, I think they'll be able to win that conference tournament because it will be on neutral floor. It won't be in a hostile venue. But, boy, I'm just kind of haunted by what I've seen, what's happened at the end of the second half of these games. Like I said, this this whole thing started way back in the Arkansas game in the Maui Classic and just kind of progressed as we've gone through the whole season. All right, before we get to the last two topics on the table, tell people about Fans Forum. We're looking for people to join us here on our Thursday podcast. I mean, seriously, there there are a ton of messages in our fans forum segment. I can see them building up. So we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. If you still have a hot take, a question for Hacksaw, type it in in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, Lee, we got you on TikTok. You're on Instagram. You know, we're going worldwide here with this podcast. So you can subscribe and follow Hacksaw wherever you like to get your content. And if you're old school, if you like sports, you got to check my website. Hey, it's posted late in the evening. Every story in the world of sports takes you five minutes to read it. I guarantee you'll like it. Just go to my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. I'm wearing my Toronto Maple Leaf jersey in honor of the NHL trading deadline. Don't answer the phone. They might trade you, John. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, you showed me the list. and It was huge. So, you know, I love all these trades that are going on because teams are trying to improve. Some teams are strategically taking one step back so they can take two forward in the next year. So let's, let's break down the list. NHL trading deadline. Is Friday afternoon, 12 noon West Coast time. There have been 42 trades made already in the National Hockey League. Can't believe how many huge names have been moved to other teams. It's really stunning. And as I say, there's still trades probably out there. Some teams are moving guys because they can't pay them. Vancouver trades Patrick. I should say Chicago trades Patrick Kane uh, to the New York Rangers. Guy's got 434 career goals. He was going to be a walk-free agent at the end of the season. Chicago's in total rebuild mode. The Giants or the New York Rangers just give up significant amount of currency to get him. Then they turn around and they get the very controversial St. Louis Blues forward, Vlad Tarasenko. Tarasenko's a goal scorer, but there's an attitude. There's a work ethic issue. St. Louis got tired of him. So the Rangers are a pretty good team in a really tough place. The Northeast Division is just a war zone. Rangers go get Patrick Kane and Vlad Tarasenko. Toronto, which has got all this wealth and all this firepower, seems to still be missing something. They trade for St. Louis's captain, uh, Ryan O'Reilly. Big guy, physical guy, great face-off guy, 30-goal scoring guy. He goes into the Maple Leaf lineup, and boy, they are so strong down center ice, which you really need. 
Islanders made the first big trade. They got Bo Horvat. That Vancouver has salary cap problems, just could not re-sign. Horvat's already signed an eight-year contract extension to stay with the Islanders. That's a 30-goal scorer that the Islanders got. Then the Devils went out because San Jose is elected to go into rebuild mode, and they did not want to pay Timo Meyer $10 million next season. That's a 30-goal scorer. Could probably wind up with 45 goals before the end of the year. He goes to the New Jersey Devils. The strange one was what happened to Jonathan Quick, the cornerstone goaltender, uh, won a Stanley Cup for the L.A. Kings. He got traded on Wednesday night to the Columbus Blue Jackets in a shocker of a deal. He was broadsided by this. He's really upset. He got traded to Columbus, and then he wakes up in the morning on Thursday morning, and Columbus trades him to Las Vegas. He will be the starting goaltender for a really good team, the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Now, Jonathan Quick is not quite the same goaltender that he was when he backstopped the L.A. Kings into the Stanley Cup and got them that ring, but still a pretty good player. I think one day they will retire his uniform back in, in Los Angeles, but he was really broadsided by that. Edmonton needs help. They got those great goal scorers uh, led by Connor McDavid, and they've just never been able to keep the puck out of them. They trade for a Nashville defenseman and Matthias Eckhorn. Uh, then the Kings in the quick trade, wind up getting a goaltender, uh, Jonas Kupasala. He comes from Columbus in the initial Jonathan Quick trade. They also get a defenseman in that deal. That should help them. The Kings are on the periphery of being a pretty good team. They're not a dominant team like the 46-win Boston Bruin team, but the Kings are pretty good, and if Kupasalo can be their hot goaltender down the stretch and in the postseason, that will help. And then late uh, on Wednesday night, Ottawa, uh, which is right on the periphery of being in the playoffs and been down for a long time, made a huge trade to get Jacob Chikrin, uh, Arizona Coyotes, who've been in fire sale mode. They wind up getting him. Um, those are all all-star players. Those are all big names. All got traded at the deadline. You and I talk about how great the baseball trading deadline is and what the NFL and NBA trading mm-hmm. deadlines have become. Hockey has now become the same thing, but hockey's dealing guys. Guy, I mean, we're talking name marquee 30 and 40 goal scoring guys or star goaltenders they're trading them because they they can't re-sign them guys price tag on players is going to 10 11 million a year these clubs don't want to do it or can't do it so i've never seen so many names get traded at once and you're talking guys been following hockey for his whole life yeah i mean you know all these guys getting traded you know Based on your analysis of the NHL, which of these which teams have improved the most and have put themselves in a position to have a really good shot at the Stanley Cup? Well, because the Northeast is so tough, led by the Boston Bruins, you're the New York Rangers. You got to do something based on what Boston's been doing, uh, and and so therefore, you have to have to rent guys, and that's what the Patrick Kane thing is. That he's age thirty four. So maybe you you rent him for two years, you sign him, and maybe he he and Tarasenko bring firepower in immediately. It kind of pushes you to the top. But uh, the business of the NHL has changed so drastically. And there may be more deals still out there between now and and Friday at, at 12 noon West Coast time. Let's talk golf. Okay. Yeah, this is this is just fascinating how these two leagues are like going head-to-head. There's all this controversy in the sport. Guys getting in fights with other guys. I mean, what's the latest here with LIV and PGA? Okay, PGA, of course, played the Honda Classic. They've, they're, you know, they're four or five weeks into their schedule. LIV just played their first tournament in Mexico City. TV ratings are out. Is anybody watching LIV? 
Dustin Johnson, <laughs> Phil Mickelson, it's like nobody's paying attention. The TV ratings for the Honda Classic this past weekend, 2.3 million viewers for the PGA. Hmm. 2.3. Hmm. LIV, Mexico City, 288,000. Wow. Think about that. It's like an 85% difference between what the PGA got and what the LIV got. Yeah. Nobody is watching the LIV despite the names and the paydays. Wow. So I, uh, we brought this up last week. I've talked to some golf people about this. I wonder how long Saudi Arabia's fund is going to go without seeing results and positives and profits from LIV. I I don't know what the long-term future is. You get 288,000 viewers, and the, the opposition is getting 2.8 million viewers? Mm-hmm. Holy cow, they got, a, they got a real problem. Now, this is a story that's just in the process of breaking here at the end of the week. PGA has announced more changes in their scheduling for 2024, John. We have the Grand Slam events that we all love. They have designated eight star events next year that will be worth $20 million in prize packages apiece. Huge upgrade. Mm -hmm. They are going to have 70 player fields for the star events. Just 70. Not the typical 142 guys at tee off. And on top of that, they're going to take the top 50 money winners that will play in the star events, and they'll keep 20 slots open for guys that have red-hot starts. So if you start the first group of tournaments, you're playing really well as a young player in 2024, you'll qualify for the star event too. Hmm. Their, their theory was the fans and the TV sets want to see all the stars, so we're going to have eight designated Star tournaments. They haven't named which tournaments it will be. It will be mega prizes, only a 70-man field, not the full field, and no cut. So it's weird to me. They're taking a bunch of stuff that LIV has been running. That's what's going to make LIV different. And now the PGA is is copycatting what LIV is doing with no-cut tournaments, only 70 guys, not the full field. Mm -hmm. Fascinating to see where this goes. But – I will say this, the Tour Policy Board, led by Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods, they were part of this creative thing. They agreed, the players' group agreed to a restructuring of what will be the 2024 schedule. So you didn't watch LIV this week in Mexico, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. Okay. I didn't think no, you did. I didn't. But this is good because um, the, the competitive pressure of the LIV is forcing the PGA to make some changes. And I know that, you know, the, the cut thing was always a problem for those players because I think if you didn't make the cut, you didn't get anything, right? There was like no prize money. Exactly. Um, so th- it's an interesting restructuring of the sport. I love the idea of getting more stars on television because it's all about TV eyeballs. And I was just thinking when you were saying – where the PGA was two point eight million or something like that, and then the LIV was two hundred and eighty thousand. I always remember just a few weeks ago we were talking about the Super Bowl with what sixty five million. Um, you know, just to get a sense of proportion, it's really interesting. Yeah, 
I think the Super Bowl number was 116 million. Was that what it was? Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> just absolutely fascinating to see where golf is going. Okay, time for fans for and we put a lot of topics on the table. Somebody out there's got some questions. I'm sure we got some answers. John, go ahead, dip in what's on your list. I mean, holy cow. <laughs> Look at these li- Okay, let's let's start from the top. This is from Wolfpack 1977. He says, So who who do you think will make the twenty-six man roster on opening day? I, I most of the jobs are set, unless there's an I think there'll be a fist fight to see who's the super utility man. I think that becomes an issue. Uh, Matt Carpenter, I think, will be because he's a multi-position guy. He'll be the first utility guy. David Dahl, the ex-Colorado Rocky, who I like, but then had a bunch of injuries in Colorado and Arizona, has started out okay. I think he he might be a guy that's going to wind up playing right field for the first group of games while Fernando Tatis uh, finishes uh, his suspension. I think we have to see what happens with Jose Azucar. You know, he's he didn't hit all that well. But he's fast. He does play good defense, and they'll continue to grow him. He might be in the mix there. So I, I think the utility job thing is really the only job that's that they need three utility guys. The only positions that are going to be open that you probably need to pay attention to. Luis Campusano will be the backup catcher. The big question: Will he be able to push his way uh, into the starting lineup? Uh, so that I think most all the jobs on the Padre roster are closed. And like I said, when camp opened last week, they had nine potential starting pitchers. They have nine potential relief pitchers. So that's going to have to sort itself out. There's injury factors with Musgrove. Is Pomerantz the same guy? So I, I don't think there's a lot of roster spots here. And I think the utility guys will play a role because you need them over a grind of 162 games. What do you think about uh, Roughnet Odor? You know, getting signed by the Padres. Uh, Odor is an ex-Texas Ranger. Um, he might be in the mix, but he's more infielder than he is outfielder. But, yeah, I, he might make it if he hits. But he only hit 201 last season. So I, I don't know if, if there's a big urgency to have a 201 hitter. He's not hit. He's bounced around a lot in the last group of years. But he'll be in that collective group maybe trying to make it as, as a super utility guy behind Matt Carpenter. Yeah. So just fascinating stuff with the Padres. But here's another great comment here. This is from M. Allen. He says, love the NHL talk franchise. No one covers the NHL like you. We did it. We did it for a long, long time. Uh, I came from a hockey background before I wound up coming here to be in the National Football League as the voice of the Chargers and obviously do what I do on talk show. Uh, I love it. You know, all you need to do is is turn on TV and watch these games and watch these fans on these telecasts and how important hockey is to them in these markets. Are they ever going to draw the TV numbers the NFL does? No, nobody does, not even the soap operas of the world on on television. But um, hockey's hockey's become a global game. It's a much better game since the, the gates were opened and the Euros came on board. I swear to you, you go through these rosters, a third to half of every roster are players now from everywhere abroad. It's fascinating to see how many great players are in Scandinavia, the ones that are coming from Russia, etc. And then the importation of the U.S. kids. It's phenomenal how many Americans are playing and starring and being successful in the NHL. But uh, we'll continue to cover it with all the big stories when it happens. We'll talk about it here on our podcast. So how many years were you grinding in the NHL minor leagues, you know, as a play-by-play broadcaster? You, ever, you never watched the movie Slapshot yet. <laughs> you need to set aside some time and mm-hmm. enjoy the movie Slapshot because I spent four years in the lower minor leagues, and that's where Slapshot was filmed. And every facet of that movie is true because I lived that life. The boys on the bus, beer, babes, the whole nine yards. <laughs> uh, and 
if you love hockey, you did it because it was the only way to get there. I heard a general manager tell me that he thinks every owner of a team should go spend some time riding a bus in the minor leagues to find out what it's like to be a young aspiring hockey player Mm -hmm. and what they have to go through to play a full season. And I was in I was in the Eastern Hockey League and the North American Hockey League, which was the lower leagues, and our travel was just horrible. That's another story for another time. But uh <laughs> yeah, so I went from there and I went to the World Hockey Association, had a blast, and then after the merger of the NHL and the WHA, we got left out in Cleveland and I wound up coming to Phoenix and then to San Diego to become an NFL play by play guy and the rest of its history. But I I do like my puck. Yeah, right on. Okay, <laughs> let's let's move down the list here. We're gonna try to get as many people involved as we can. This is from Manny N. He says, What should the Rams expect in a Jalen Ramsey trade? He's a pretty good player. He's a pretty mouthy player, but he became last year, at least I thought, a very erratic player. You know, they they paid two number one draft picks to get him out of Jacksonville when the Jaguars are going through their fire sale. I don't think they're going to get two number ones for Jalen Ramsey now. There's a cap figure crisis there. Uh, His cap figure is worth $12 million. I think if they could get a number one for him. But in all honesty, Mario, the the problem is you trade Jalen Ramsey, maybe you're getting rid of a problem. But you trade Jalen Ramsey, you're creating another problem. Who's going to play cornerback for you? He is your best cover corner. It's a big issue that is complicated by cap issues and the fact they're still trying to restock their draft pick drawer. Uh, I Everybody I talk to around the league says they think he's going to be traded. Wow. I mean, just it's unbelievable what these teams have to do to get their roster in order and, and balance really, it and balance it and get prepared for the draft. I mean, these GMs are, are working over overtime right now. Let's get a bunch of other folks here involved. And this is uh, this is from Angie Neal. Um, it'll be interesting to see if there is an increase with the number of stolen bases with the implementation of the pitching clock. Oh, I have no doubt. I, I think it's going to rocket. And I think you'll see teams now maybe try to get make roster moves to acquire guys with speed in addition to what they already have on their roster. I mean, just think of this. The pitcher on the mound has to pay attention to the pitch clock count behind home plate. He has to watch that runner and then he has to be worried do I make my pitch to the plate? Is this the one time out of the two times I can make a move to first base? Then it becomes a mind game for the pitcher in terms of his concentration. So to me it's a Big, big issue, and I, I think bringing the stolen base back into the game is going to be huge. And there's a subset angle to that story is what we call the pizza box size of the bases with the new big bases. Yeah. That's going to give the runner more room to reach for the bag and not get tagged out. It's also going to be a safety factor. And I, I, I really believe it'll be a safety factor for the base runner going head first in. It'll be a safety factor for the fielder not getting blown out trying to make a double play pivot. So I think the increased size, we call them the pizza box bases, <laughs> uh, that's going to help change the game too. I, the running game is back. It's going to be good, just like they added the designated hitter last year, which I thought was great for the National League. Yeah, right. On. I'm, I'm looking forward to these changes. And I mean, think about how many plays at second base when they steal are like just inches, you mm-hmm. know, that that tag can be on or off. Now it's going to be advantage runner. This is going to be really exciting. On we go. Got a couple more questions here on our fans forum. A couple more. And let me go to some of the YouTube comments because we've got some good ones here. And this is uh, one about the Olympics that I thought was pretty interesting from Zest Riddle. He says, Olympics were to replace wars. So countries compete and fight against each other on the sports arena and not with actual swords and guns. Inviting a country that is participating in active aggression against another Olympic member is completely against that spirit. 
Well, the spirit, though, has been damaged by politics forever and ever. You know, I, I first be, became aware of the horrors of politics in the Olympics with the Munich Games and, and the kidnappings and the deaths and all that. Um, we've always had politics on the periphery. Uh, I guess my heart says because these athletes work so hard. And what it was America boycotted the was it Moscow Olympics under Jimmy Carter? Yeah, nineteen eighty. I, I felt so bad for all those athletes who had worked full four years to get qualified, go to the Olympics, and then can't go because of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that the IOC should ban uh, the Russian and the Belarus athletes who are innocent victims. Do you ban them because they carry a Russian passport? They haven't done anything as it relates to Ukraine. It's a big issue. I think there's also an arguing point. Do you allow them to participate and not take part in the ceremonies? They don't have a flag to fly if you're not going to recognize Putin's Russian flag. But but politics has always been part, sadly, of the Olympics. And I don't care what the ideology is. And the Olympics has also been stained by the ide- ideology of greed. That's yeah. what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just don't know that we should ban these athletes because I think they're innocent victims of what somebody else in their country has done. Yeah, I mean – People much smarter than me, they're going to have to make these decisions. You would hope that the Olympics could bring people together, but you can't be inviting warmongers to the table. It's a tough call that they're going to have to make. And to your point, you cannot, under any circumstances, penalize the athletes. Okay, on we go. We'll sneak a couple more in here. Okay, so uh, let's just, you know, all this talk about, you know, Manny Machado and his contract, it's just been fascinating. This one's from um, I.B. Henriksen. He says, I honestly don't think he changes much had he signed with another team. There's something about San Diego that just transforms you into being a better person, unless you're Ryan Leaf. Well, I will say <laughs> this. Manny is different. He's changed. He's not the Manny Machado that I was told about to be, be wary of or all the junk that he did in Baltimore. He's not, he's not the I'm not Johnny Hustle Manny Machado that ended his tenure with a firestorm of criticism over his comments while he was a member of the Dodgers. He's become a very different player. Has he grown into it? I hope so. Uh, Peter Seidler has given him enormous amounts of money. Manny has praised Seidler, saying he's learned so much from him in his private conversations with him. I hope that's true. Uh, There's no doubt he's gifted. There's no doubt the game comes easy to him. There's no doubt that the guy's a grinder. I think nine times in his career he's played over 150 games in a season. John, that's a phenomenal amount mm-hmm. of wear and tear. So he is the cornerstone of the team. I'm not ready to vote on Mr. Padre yet because that still goes to everything that Tony Gwynn was about as a player and as a person. I think if we're going to name anybody the next Mr. Padre, it might be Peter Seidler. Yeah. But we'll we'll see. We'll see if Manny can continue this. It's, you know, put him under the terms of an 11-year contract. That's an enormous amount of investment when a guy reaches beyond age 35. But uh, – He's changed. I think he's changed as a person, and I think that's really good for our baseball franchise. Manny is the man, you know, so I'm, I'm ecstatic for him with his new contract. All right, let's get another comment in here talking about Seidler, you know, um, and th- this is from KB8SD. And he says, don't be surprised if at the trade lo- deadline, A.J. Preller unloads Jackson Merrill and other prospects um, not named Ethan Salas for an unhappy ace pitcher in Milwaukee, Corbin Burns, who just lost his arbitration case. Well, 
Well, I th- there's multiple ways to look at this. The money is really spent. You know, they're at $254 million, which is above that threshold. They're at two seventy four uh, as a, as the collective tax issue. Uh, they're going to they're wind up paying money on three different levels of, of the luxury tax. Uh, somewhere along the way, you have to keep your players. You have to start keeping some of your young guys because you got a roster that's going to be compiling some age on it. Uh, to take on another contract, you know, if you Corbin Burns, a you'd have to have to pay a steep price, yeah, Jackson Merrill, etc. But to take on another ten to eleven million dollar contract on top of what you're already paying, I don't know. That's that is awful steep because you still you'd have to sign Burns next year to a contract, and you, you're still looking down the barrel of the gun of the whole Juan Soto situation within the next calendar year, year and a half. So. I don't know if there's much more left in that checking account once we get to the trading deadline, but only time tells. And as John and I have talked, every year is really different. You recalibrate. You do hit the reset button there on the right-hand side that that says, okay, you get rid of Blake Snell. You let him walk. You get rid of some other veterans. They walk. So you're taking some of that veteran money that you could reallocate somewhere else. That's a reset situation, probably for the trade deadline and for the offseason. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed our Thursday podcast. It's fabulous that you're here. We do an expanded podcast every Thursday. We do bonus podcasts on Monday. Please subscribe anywhere you can, whether it's YouTube or any of the audio channels, so you'll get the alerts when we put new stuff up on our podcast, and we do it virtually every day. And before you're done, check my website, either late in the evening or early the next morning, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Ton, absolute ton of written information. And we want you to text, email, message everybody that you're involved with, Tell them about our podcast. Tell them about our sports website. John, great show as usual. Have yourself a great sports weekend. We'll see you come Monday. Looking forward to it, my friend. Thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines. Have yourself a great sports weekend, too. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com. 